Is that better there? Is that better there? I love, um, I love how the body is all gifted uniquely, and absolutely, because I uh, oversee a training center in Tennessee, part of a team actually that does it. But um, I love to see people operate in. You can talk about it operating their lanes, or maybe operating their gifting. Uh, either either way. But I don't like it when people operate by stealing my markers. I don't like that. No, I probably lost it. I, crayons, that's, I thought that would, hey, that, that would work, right? That'd be the same thing. And speaking about just kind of going with, the, going with the Spirit. Oh, thank you. I saw her run. Um, I want to hike. I kind of felt like this would happen. I want to stay in Ephesians, and we're going to come back there this week and look at some of the characteristics. But I want you to open your Bibles up to James this evening. I, I'm in a, I, I spoke on this actually, I think, two years ago here in Texas. And uh, was it Crowley? No, it's camp meeting where I spoke on this. Is it camp meeting? I know, that, I know you were there, Cal. I don't know if any of your people were there. But I've never spoke here before. Um, I, I work a lot in interdenominational ministries. Uh, you are awesome, girl. I can. <laughs> She's a she, that girl's a jewel. Um, work a lot in interdenominational ministries, and you can't assume. Tonight's really, really important. You just can't assume people are on the same page sometimes, and I hate to use the word, but theologically. Um, especially when you're talking about terms like sin. What we've been talking about in terms of the, the context in which we live, in which mankind was created to live, what threw us out of the loop, what threw us into all that we are living in today was sin. You guys, sin is like a big deal. And I, I come, I live in the South. I was born in the North where, you know, people talk normal. I, I give the pause. But we moved down to Tennessee, and I live in an, in an area where sin is so casual. People talk about sin so lightly. They talk about it as, you know, come on, no one's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes, which I do, I, I get, and which the scriptures talk about. But there is a severity to saying no to Jesus, to saying no to the Spirit. So I want to walk you through this this evening. Most people don't realize that there are 33 different Greek words for sin in our New Testament, which is over-the-top ridiculous. <laughs> Seriously, if I was in charge of that whole thing, I'd be like, scrap half of them. We don't need that many. But it's almost like it's a big deal. It's a huge topic. Those 33 different Greek words come from 10 different lexical terms. And by the way, we have that kind of terminology reflected in our English language as well. We can use the word sin. We can use the word rebellion. Those are two different terms. We can use the word mistake, which is a, a connotation of sin. We can use the word accident, 
You know, there's law breaking, lawlessness. There's all these different terms that in a round way, in a roundabout way, talk about sin. So when we talk about good and evil and right and wrong, there's a lot of language and terminology we throw around, and therefore it gets confusing. So I want to look with you this evening, and it's so the passage we want to look at in James is so significant because he just basically breaks sin down into two categories, that all the terminology used in our New Testament really can be broken down into two specific categories of sin. There are mistakes or error, and there is rebellion. And those are two different things. Going to the gas station, intending to put in unleaded and putting in diesel, that is a mistake. Going to the Going to Kroger and getting, you know, whole milk when your wife wants 2%, that's a big mistake, but it's a mistake. Having an affair on your husband or wife, that's not a mistake. That's not like, whoops. Well, I was actually going to the, you know, I was going to the gas station and had an affair. Robbing a bank, that's not an affair. I mean, that's, that's not an affair. That's not a mistake. There, there, there's, there's very clear boundaries. And I'm going to look with you this evening at how James talks about this. And it's, it's become a staple in, in our teaching when we go to churches across the country. And specifically, when I get the opportunity in interdenominational ministries, just to come back to the Word. Everybody has an opinion. Okay, everybody has an opinion. You have one, I have one, I'm, I'm cool with that. Although in my opinion, my opinions are like really good. But I don't want to just give you my opinion. I, want, I really want to show you what the scriptures say. And I want to look with you out of James. James is a huge letter in our New Testament. Um, I side with those group of scholars which suggest an earlier dating uh, of the letter that James wrote, which I believe is really consistent with church history, that it's, it's probably the first letter in our New Testament. Um, James, there's a few different James in our New Testament uh, that are, that's mentioned. A few different guys named James. Uh, this is the half-brother of Jesus. So he, like, he grew up in, in the home with Jesus. Could you imagine growing up with an older brother like that? That'd be terrible. I mean, I love Jesus, but living with him, that'd be a whole other level, wouldn't it? Yeah, I'm not going to win that one. Probably should move on, but... Um, he grew up in the home with Jesus. What's crazy is when you get in the New Testament you find that during Jesus' earthly ministry, this guy, James, was not a big fan. Really wasn't a follower. There's a few different times in the Gospels, specifically, if you want to read about it later, in John chapter 7, where his brothers, his family, but specifically Jesus' brothers, they get in this outright confrontation with Jesus. And Jesus just says, listen, I'm not like you guys. Dude, that's heightened. Other places in Matthew, when his disciples come and say, hey, your, your mom and your, bro- and your brothers are here. Your family's here. He's like, this is my family. Let them sit out there. I mean, there's clearly tension going on between him and his brothers. James is a part of that group. But something happens to this guy. In fact, Paul mentions it in one of his letters, how Jesus, after his death and resurrection, or yeah, after his resurrection, he actually appears personally to James, to this guy. And so sometime around Pentecost, God gets a hold of James, and he's elevated to like the leader of the early church, the leader of the 12 apostles. I mean, when Paul comes down to Jerusalem, he reports to James. 
So he's this tremendous individual. And during this time, of course, he's pastoring the largest and most influential church on the face of the planet, the church in Jerusalem. But he's also writing this letter. And I want you to note, if you have your Bibles open and you look at the very first chapter and the very first verse, when James introduces himself, he moves to introducing the recipients of this letter. And he says, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. There's two things about that. The first is, this letter is not written to his church. He has, could you imagine this platform? Jesus, I would love this platform. James is given a platform of addressing the church of his day. That's crazy. And he addresses with this letter. And secondly, the language he uses is the 12 tribes. When James wrote this letter, the church was really Jewish. Gentiles really don't start pouring in until Paul comes around. There's all kinds of things we could talk about in terms of the immediate return of Jesus, which they thought was likely and all that. But at this time, the church was essentially Jewish. So these were Jewish Christians that had come to a Jewish festival that had been filled by the Spirit, Pentecost, on a Jewish feast, then went back to their Jewish families in their Jewish towns, met in a Jewish synagogue, and they just believed that their Jewish Messiah had come, and they just lived out their faith as Jews. So, so James is writing them, and he's talking to them about the transition of Old Covenant Judaism, which was all they knew, about an outside God they were in relationship that is not with, that has now come to live inside of them. And that sin, this is so big, sin is not just an outside wrong thing. It is, it is a disease of the heart that literally separates you from God. It literally moves you from sonship to out here. And one of the things I find in our culture today, everywhere we go, people talk about sin like it's not a big deal. Like you can live in hate. You can live in deception you can live in sexual immorality and somehow you're still cool, God's okay with it and all that. Dude, that's just not biblical. You with me? This is not true. Now, it's interesting, James writes this letter, and we're not going to go through the whole book of James, but the first chapter he dedicates to defining the message. It's the first letter written under the New Testament. It is a letter written to the global church of his day. And what James is doing is he's clarifying the message. If you want to know what the early church believed within 10 to 15 years after the death of Jesus, read James. He just lays it out. He's very black and white. I love the guy. You know, and just some fun facts. James uses more military terminology and more commands, the imperative mood of the verb, more commands than any other writer in Scripture comparative to his, the size of his book. If you were to like do the math and make them all the same size, he uses more. He uses literally 50 commands in just over 100 verses. Like every other verse, he's screaming at you. I love him. <laughs> he's really aggressive. This matters. Dude, he's not casual. He's very straightforward. He's a direct communicator. Praise the Lord for direct communicators. Right, Sarisa? Amen. <laughs> We're direct communicators. So in the first chapter, he just lays out what it means to be a Christian. In chapters 2 through 5, 
what James does is he goes through and he deals with issues that the early church uh, is facing, that they're facing. The first issue he addresses is the issue of sin. Okay? So it's, it's a major issue, and he talks about sin. This is how the church should view sin, and this is how you, being the body of Christ, should view sin in your world, what it means to you, how you teach it to your children, and the devastating effects of letting it linger in your life. Flat out. So I want to walk you, walk you through this. So we're going to basically just kind of quite a quick overview of chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 13, which is the context of the verse. We're going, we're going to look at one verse tonight. The context of sin is, um, it's shrouded in this term, favoritism. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, My brethren, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Which is, I cracked up when I was studying this. I was like, dude, what does he mean? Favoritism. You can't have favorite music. You can't have favorite food. You can't have favorite friends. That's weird. There are certain terms that once you translate them into English, they mean a little, they mean different. They mean different. I have, I have terms that I grew up with that when I use, I use those now, they don't have the same kind of meaning to my children that they did to me when I was a kid. I mean, terms change. Gay. I mean, back when I was, you know, well, I'm not that old. Back when Cal was younger, the term gay meant joyful. You know, I remember stories of, you know, just how that word is used. And I mean, certain old plays and all that. That's not used that way anymore. You just don't, you don't use certain terms. They change meaning. The term favoritism in our culture does not mean what it meant in their culture. The term favoritism, it's used four times in our New Testament. One of them's here. It's always a command. It's always, it's always strong. It, it's, it's two Greek words put together. It's the Greek words outward. You with me? Okay. It's the Greek words outward and countenance. So to show favoritism means I favor you because of your outward countenance. And God says, don't ever do that. Because I don't do that. You are not favored because of your outward countenance. Uh, the example he gives in verses 2 through 4 is if a rich guy comes in with a cool sweatshirt, great beard, Adidas shoes. Hey. Yeah. It's my, it's my kids. Isn't that awesome? When I go away at night, you know, I preach. So to show favoritism to a, what he says, a rich man with fine clothes, that's your favoring because of the outward. If you give the rich man a nice seat and you give a poor man the floor, it's wrong. Don't do that. Don't show favoritism. Don't favor because of the outward. I've been to churches where I was fearful that my kids would not be accepted because they weren't good looking enough or they weren't talented enough. By the way, that's how our world operates. Women, I think, probably get the worst of it. So many women, they, in our culture, women seem, they're pressured to get their value from their outward countenance. I mean, clothing and, it's not just clothing and makeup, which we're all cool with, but it's surgeries, it's changing their body, it's, 
you get old. I tell teenagers this all the time. I'm like, yeah, you're young. I mean, you got some yeah, you got good-looking kids here. You're going to get old and hairy. Seriously, look around. That's where you're headed. Okay, it's old. But your value is not wrapped up in the outward. So that's what he's talking about. So here's the thing. When you show favoritism, you are not seeing the way that God sees. Hear this. and put this together for you. The first issue he's dealing with is sin. The fundamental of sin, what he's talking about, is not seeing the way God sees. Not feeling the way God feels. See, we're not talking about a bad event. We're not talking about something that's, that's evil. Okay, obviously robbing a bank is bad. But when you willfully choose not to see the way he sees, that's sin. Because that's what favoritism is. Listen to how he says it. Go down to verse 9. He's talking about a certain individual. He says, if you show favoritism, this is James chapter 2, verse 9. He says, if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as a lawbreaker. What's interesting, there's two different Greek words. This is so good. You're going to love this. There are two different Greek words for sin in verse 9. So here's what he says. If you don't see the way God sees, that's favoritism. You choose to see on the outward countenance, God looks at the heart. Just showing up to church on Sunday and cutting it. It's why do you do it? It's the matter of the heart. God is not mocked. So he says if you show favoritism, if you don't see the way God sees, you sin. That first Greek word there for, that we translate sin is the Greek word hamartia hamartia now hamartia is literally translated error this is it's a little tricky so see if i can do this and see if you can hang on with me through this the term hamartia is the most kind of generic word for sin in the new testament it's used in a variety of ways but the when this word is used it's highlighting error it's highlighting something is wrong Okay? It doesn't matter if you meant to do it, you meant to do wrong, or if you didn't mean to do wrong, it's still wrong. The emphasis of this word is on error. Give me an example. Uh, you have two kids. This is the illustration I use with my kids. You have two kids, and they are in, uh, bi- they're in biology, and uh, the teacher's a little rough, and uh, they're having a four-day weekend coming up, and the teacher says, don't forget when you come back, there's going to be a quiz. Who wants to study for a quiz over four-day weekend but it's biology and we know how that is so they go home as they're leaving class everybody's got to study and there's two kids in particular a guy and a girl and the guy's like dude i ain't studying i don't care four-day weekend i'm not doing it okay but he doesn't study much anyway but there's a girl a student top of the class family going away for the weekend she's really bummed because she doesn't want to study but she's a good student good kid she's going to go ahead and study so they go home, the guy doesn't study, true to his word, the girl does. Spends actually six, seven hours on Saturday when they're away on vacation to study. They come back, get to school on Tuesday, and they walk in and there's, there's the quiz upside down, hidden on all their desks, and they sit down to take it. Teacher's walking around, she sees the, the kids taking their test, they flip them over, begin to take them, and the girl is crying. And the guy's already done. Of course, she kind of halfway watched him. He just flipped it over and went, A, C, B, C, A, C, B, C, A, C, A, C, C, B, done. 
Okay, we know what's going to happen with him. But the girl's really upset, so they should do the 10 or 15 minutes. She's, you know, finally done. The teacher comes up and says, what's wrong? Are you okay? And she's like, I studied the wrong chapter. So they grade the test in class, and sure enough, both fail. So the teacher calls him after class, says, I want to see you. She looks at the young man and says, did you study? And he's like, nope. She sends him to the office. But she looks at the girl and says, how could you get an F? She's like, again, I studied the wrong chapter. They both fail. Period. Now, he didn't study. He deserves to fail. He's kind of, you know, a rough kid. But she's a good kid and all that, but she still failed. The focus of the failing is on that it's wrong. I know you didn't mean to, he did, but you still, it's, it's wrong. I, I use this all the time when I get pulled over for speeding. I do. I tell the cop, I'm like, dude, dude I did. I'm, not a, I'm not a criminal. It was an accident. I wasn't paying attention. I was on my phone, and, uh, you know, I, I'm sorry. I'm a Christian. <laughs> you know, this is actually a really quick truth. I was in Texas years ago, and I was preaching at Euless. Don't ever go to Euless. And um, I'm going over, it's a true story, I'm going over this on-ramp, and there's this cop in the middle lane. And uh, I ended up pulling up right beside him. It was a gorgeous day. It was like late February. It's like 70s, high 70s. I had the windows down in my car. I pull up, and I'm like, hey, man. And he's like, how you doing, man? And we're chatting and talking. And, and uh, he goes, hey. And I was like, this is a beautiful day. Where are you from? I'm off of Tennessee. It was, it was awesome. And um, he goes, hey, you're not wearing your, your seatbelt. I was like, oh, okay, I'm sorry. He goes, hey, go ahead and pull over. I was like, yeah, hey, man, we're... I mean, we connected, <laughs> you know. That dude gave me a ticket, a $350 seatbelt ticket. I was like, how can you live with yourself, you know? I didn't do it on purpose. I don't, I don't think he was Nazarene. I think that's what the problem was. But the point is, it wasn't rebellion, but it still, it was in error. That's, that's hamartia. So put that idea, do you understand the idea? Error is, it's not necessarily, it can be rebellion, but most of the time, the emphasis of this, this word is just that something is incorrect, which is how it's used in our passage. James says, if you don't see the way God sees, you're in error. You're, that's what sin is. You're malfunctioning. And which you understand, you can not see the way God sees on purpose, but I meet all kinds of people the way they talk, the way they dress, the way they act, the way they drive, their political views. Well, I mean, there's, I'm seriously, there's all kinds of things in life where I look at them and I say, they're just a little bit off. You ever meet any Christians who are just a little off? They're in error. They're not functioning correctly. They're not seeing correctly. It doesn't mean they're like, you know, hating God. They're just wrong. That's this deal. So he's describing this individual in verse 9 who doesn't see the way God sees and he's in error. So he says, listen, if you show favoritism, you don't see the way God sees, you're in error. But this guy is convicted. The word convicted literally means exposes. So God comes to him and says, listen, you're in error. You don't see the way I see. And then he opens the guy's eyes to it. What condemns the guy in verse 9 is he becomes a lawbreaker which is a different Greek word for sin. Lawbreaker is two words put together. It's, it's, it's literally the word uh, that we would translate to step around, which is a conscious choice 
of I know exactly how you feel, I know exactly what you're saying, and I don't care. Jesus uses this term in the Good Samaritan story. And in that story, he's actually talking to the leaders of Israel. Because the illustration is of this poor Jew that's been beaten and bloodied. And along come all these religious leaders who know exactly what they're supposed to do. But instead of helping the guy, they step around him. It's the word parabeno. It's the most aggressive word for sin in the New Testament. Literally means rebellion. So what Jesus is actually saying to the leaders, and by the way, if you read that story, and at the end of it, the leaders of Israel are all upset. Why? Because Jesus is like, dude, you're a sinner. Jesus, I know exactly how you feel about this, and I'm doing it anyway. I'm stepping around you. What brings condemnation in our life? Hear this. This is so good. What puts you outside is not the fact that you're wrong. Not that you're in error. That guy who doesn't see the way Jesus sees, doesn't see the way God sees, who's showing favoritism, sees the outside, not the inside, doesn't see the way God sees, he's in error. But what condemns him is that when God tries to correct him, he won't let him. Does that make sense? See, what condemns an individual, what condemns, an ind- what condemns a person, what puts you in judgment is not that you're wrong. It's that you refuse to be righted. Those are two different things. I call it, I, I call it the two-year-old principle. You heard of the two-year-old principle? I don't like two-year-olds. You ever go to buy the nursery, look at those little heathens? beating on each other with Tonka trucks. That's not correct behavior. Oh, they're so cute. Uh, No, they're not. Yet in light of that, no one goes by the nursery and goes, wow, those kids are going to hell. Look, of course they're not. Why? Because they don't know any better. Now when you have a board meeting... And the 44-year-old guy acts like a two-year-old. That's an altogether different thing. Because he knows better. Dude, I meet people like this all the time. Dude, nobody's perfect. Uh, what, do, have you read the Bible? I was on a plane. That's why I stopped flying. People are so nosy. You sit down. So what do you do for a living? I'm like, leave me alone. Got a Christian shirt on. It's all weird. I was on this plane with this guy, and he's just getting tanked, which I'm, hey. I, say, I get bumped up to first class all the time, so I was like, hey, free alcohol, have at it. He asked him what I do for a living, and I'm talking about Jesus. Oh, I'm a Christian, man. I'm like, Cool. He goes on to talk about some mistakes he made. Yeah, I'm getting a divorce. What happened? Oh, I cheated on my wife. Then he looks at me and goes, no one's perfect. I'm like, you're a bozo. <laughs> That's not a mistake, man. You know exactly what you were doing is wrong. By the way, I'll go ahead and address this because people always say, oh, he's so judgmental. One of the reasons, um, this is 100% true, I love your pastor 
your pastor family, pastoral family. And one of the reasons I love Cal so much is he's just so judgmental. Seriously, everyone who gets to know him knows that. I usually use, but he didn't have an old enough kid for this. I usually use the illustration of a pastor who has a, has a daughter who's 15. Those are the fun ones. And how on Saturday night, she gets ready. She's going to the front door, and he's like, where are you going? It's like 11 o'clock. I'm just going to go hang out with some friends. He hears some noise, open the front door. All these bikers pull up on their Harleys. Older guys, beards, jackets. He slams the door and says, over my dead body. I'm thinking, oh, he's so judgmental. Do you know that it's interesting? There's several words for judgmental in the New Testament. We as Christians are not supposed to condemn. You're actually supposed to judge. What's the difference? Condemn means you're not worthy of being saved. Yeah, you're not worthy of salvation. We never do that. Jesus did not come to condemn the world. Well, we're supposed to make, we, we're supposed to be able to judge what's right and wrong. You do it all. You make judgments on what your kids watch on TV. You make judgments on who they hang out with. You make judgments on all kinds of things every day. It's not bad to judge. We're supposed to judge. In fact, Paul says in Corinthians, what business is it of mine to judge the world? I'm supposed to judge those in the church. We make judgments on what's inappropriate and what's not appropriate. That's the same thing. We make uh, judgments on what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. So it's not wrong to judge. It's not wrong to look at someone and say, dude, you are living in rebellion against God. That's not correct. You with me? Yeah, judgment. It's not bad. I mean, dude, that's, again, Cal, so judgmental. I love it. <laughs> you are so uptight. These, these sell everywhere else I go. So what, can, what puts a person in condemnation, again, is not the fact that they're wrong. Two-year-olds are wrong. And two-year-olds don't, don't go to hell. You'd say, why is that? We call it Grace. This is beautiful. Did you know, this is so neat. Did you know that when Jesus died, before and after all of humanity, everyone who's ever been born is born forgiven. He's already forgiven you. You just have to receive it. So that's why two-year-olds go to heaven. Because they're forgiven. I'm not saying they're Christian. I'm not saying they're perfect. But they're forgiven. And all the things, all the, this is beautiful, all the error in your life, that stuff that's wrong, that you don't see, he doesn't hold it against you. Why? Because you don't know any better. But when he reveals it and you say, no thanks, I want to remain this way, what you're really saying is, I don't want to see like you see. I don't want to see women the way you see women. I don't want to see men the way you see men. I don't want to see money the way you see money. Yeah, I don't want to see my neighbor the way you see my neighbor. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to. But I want to go to heaven. That's the issue he's raising. When we don't see the way he sees, we're in error. But that's, everybody's in error. Everybody has something wrong with them. But when he reveals it to you and you say no, that puts you outside of Christ. Because what you're saying is, I don't want to see like Christ sees. 
Let me give you an example of this because you're all looking at me weird. No, you're not. I'm just teasing. But I want to give you an example of this. Turn with me, and I do want you to turn here, to 1 John, because this is talked about all over the New Testament. And I want you to look at me at 1 John, and we're going to actually look at the punchline. We're going to look at three places in, in 1 John. This is actually, if you ever want to study a book on sin, honestly, read 1 John. Now, you can read Romans, and you'll be reading it for the rest of your life, because it is a very difficult book to study. But 1 John is it's just really common language. I want to walk you through some of it. I'm reading out of the NIV translation. In 1 John chapter 5, in 1 John chapter 5, beginning at verse 16, I've met people, this is so neat because I meet people all the time, it's like, I've never read that verse before. Listen to this. John says, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is, and it should read, there is sin, it's not a sin, there is sin that does not lead to death. And I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin. And there's sin that does not lead to death. You're like, that's weird. What's he saying? Well, it's clear. There's sin that condemns you, and there's sin that does not. You're like, what's this lead to death and not lead to death? Well, you understand, John uses language. He uses life and death, light and darkness. If you are, if you are saved, you are experiencing now and forever will experience eternal life. If you are not saved, if you're not living in Christ, you are experiencing now and will always experience in, in perpetual growth, eternal death. God is light. Outside of him is darkness. So it's light, darkness, life, death. He says there's sin that does not lead to death. What do you mean? Well, there's sin that doesn't condemn you. What's that sin? That's that, and by the way, that word for sin is error. There's error in your life that you don't know about that doesn't condemn you. So he says, listen, if you see anybody, in, this is so good, if you see anybody in your church that is living in error, but they don't see it, pray. And by the word, that word pray has to do with discipleship, has to do with love, has to do with wrap your arms around, has to do with get to know them. Yeah, if you see someone in your church, in your body, that has error in their life that they don't see, disciple them. But he says, listen, I'm referring to that sin that they don't see. There's sin that leads to death. And I'm not saying just to pray about that. We tolerate stuff we shouldn't tolerate. You know Paul actually says, cast the immoral brother from among you? Cal, I got an idea. You guys have like friendship day? You should have cast the immoral brother out of church day. Dude, that'd be awesome. You're out of here, Charles. <laughs> there ain't a Charles here, is there? Yeah, grab that sucker neck. Wham! You got a couple guys that are big enough to do it. Do we? We don't. Do we're not playing around. We're not playing around with this Jesus stuff. That's the songs you are singing. I love it, dude. I'm all surrendered. I'm all in. It's crazy how we sing that stuff and don't live it. Isn't that amazing? All these lights. I can't tell if you're asleep or you're excited. You're like these shadows. There we go. One. Right, that's huge. <laughs> that's what he's saying. This is, it's, it's so significant. There's sin that's error 
It's, 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 the, it's the young person that, man, they just don't know any better. They're young. But when you have an individual that's living in rebellion, Paul says, go and talk to them. John says this as well. If they don't listen to you, grab somebody else and go talk with them because you love them. If they won't listen, hey, see you. Out. Out the door, out the window, one of them's happening. Because this is a whole nother level, dude. We're savage. We're, we're, we're literally, we're militants of love. And I love you. I love you so much, I'm not going to tolerate this. Let me give you a couple of other examples. This is, that's the end of, by the way, that's the punchline that John comes to in his whole book. Go back with me. This is so good. Go back with me to 1 John chapter 1. So at the beginning of that book, the, and this, we're almost done. The first four verses, we Okay. The first four verses of John, 1 John is an introduction of Jesus. Okay? It's an introduction of Jesus. Then he says in verse 5, listen to verse 5, he says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Dude, this is as cut and dry as you get. Here's what he says. He says, listen, God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. So here's what he's saying. God is this, God's not that. If you claim to walk in the light, but you live in the darkness, you're a liar and don't live by the truth. You just can't get any more frank than that. God's this, he's not that. If you claim to live with him, but you live in this, something is clearly wrong with you. So it's very black and white. And then he goes to uh, my favorite verse in all the New Testament, just simply because it makes Christians nervous. He says in verse 8, If we claim, this is so good for us Nazarenes, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If there's anyone in this room right here who says, I have no sin in my life, you are deceit. Well, first off, just ask your wife. You're like, what's that word for sin? Error. Hamartia. He says, if anyone says they have no error, I'm perfected, I'm just waiting to go to heaven. <laughs> no more room to grow. Ask around. If we claim to be without error, we're deceived. But then he goes and says, but if we confess our errors as God reveals them, he's faithful and just, not just to forgive us of our errors, but to purify us from every area of our life that's unright. Dude, that's so easy to understand. Here's what he says. Listen, God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. If you claim to walk in the light but live in darkness, something is clearly wrong with you. You're a liar and don't live by the truth. That's his language. So I'm not tolerating rebellion, he begins his whole book with. But then he goes, but listen, yeah, nobody's perfect, I get it. In fact, if you, can, if you say, I have no error, verse 8, if we claim to be without error, I'm perfect, I'm just waiting to go to heaven, you're deceived. But if you embrace the fact that I have still room to grow, and I show up on Sunday morning and I'm saying, Jesus, I want to look like you. Reveal any area of my life. That's such a good song. Reveal any area of my life where I don't look like you. I'm wide open. 
And he reveals the areas where I don't see the way he sees. I don't feel the way he feels. I don't talk the way he talks. And he reveals those. He's literally faithful, not just to forgive me of it, but cleanse it out of me so I don't look like that anymore. (laughs) It's ridiculous. So the first half of his book, he deals with error stuff. Stuff in our life that we don't see and how he's cleansing us, sanctifying us through and through. By the time he gets to the middle of the book, which is chapter 3, verse 4, and I'm going to read this in the Passion Translation, which is just ridiculous. I love it. Oh, no, it's not James 3. 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 4. This, it, it just doesn't get any more plain than this. Listen to his language. You want to know, you want to know the early church's proclamation of rebellion and if it's okay listen to how he talks about it if you have the passion translation it, by the way it's free on on the devices um if you don't have it i'd get it but if you do chapter 3 verse 4 down listen to what he says beginning in verse 4 anyone who indulges in sin that's the word error anyone who indulges in error you know it's wrong but you indulge in it anyone who indulges in error lives in moral anarchy. For the definition of sin is breaking God's law. And you know without a doubt that Jesus was revealed to eradicate, get rid of sins. And there was no sin in him. Anyone who continues to live in union with him will not sin. But the one who continues sinning hasn't seen him with discernment or known him by intimate experience. In other words, I'm sure they go to church on Sunday, but they don't know him. Verse 7, delightfully loved children, don't let anyone divert you from this truth. The person who keeps doing what is right proves that he's a righteous man before God, even as the Messiah is righteous. But the one who indulges in a sinful life is of the devil. Because the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God was revealed was to undo and destroy the devil's work. Verse 9. Everyone who is truly God's child will refuse to keep sinning. Because God's seed remains in him. He's unable to continue sinning. He has been fathered by God himself. Here's how God's children can be clearly distinguished from the children of the evil one. Anyone who does not demonstrate righteousness and show love to fellow believers is not living with God at his source. Woo! Get it. That's phenomenal, dude. That's the message. That's the message of Christianity. It's not denominational stuff. He who does what is right is righteous. He who does not do what is right and knows it is not righteous. God is not mocked, man. We live in a day and age. My wife had a girl who came to our house recently. She used to live with us. We mentored her for a while, and she's went off into a sinful lifestyle that many in today's culture say is okay. She's talking about how she loves the Lord and all this, and my wife's just like, but the Bible is clear on this. Well, no one's perfect. And it just, it 
breaks my heart. Because she's, she's a mess. She's not happy. There's no joy. You, you just, brothers and sisters, you, you just can't tolerate rebellion in your life. It literally excludes you from everything he has from you. Did you know that God doesn't send anybody to hell? Did you know that? God doesn't send anybody to hell. You're saying no one's in hell? I didn't say that. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You with me? For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they did not believe. What's he saying? He's saying that the entire world is broken and in error, and God's already forgiven them. Why? Because he wants to save them. But there's some who refuse to be saved. And on the brink of the end of their life, instead of letting God save them, they leap into eternity without him, which is a place called hell. Hell was created for the devil and his angels, and you were not to go there. And if you go there, it's not because he sent you there. You refused to let him save you. Jesus said, listen, I've come. I've forgiven everybody. I go to prepare a place for you. It's going to be there's a big pool. It's going to be awesome. There's like four-wheelers, big beer. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. It's awesome. Let me save you. But there are some that say, you don't understand. I want to go to heaven. I want the big retirement community in the sky. But I don't want to see the way you see. I don't want to feel the way you feel. I don't, this ain't biblical, but I'm under the impression that one day, I wouldn't be surprised if, if heaven's wide open. And people get there and look around and say, dude, it's an, it's an eternal church service? How bad's hell? Can I look at it real quick? Can I just run and check it out? If you don't want him here, why would you want him there? That's a fundamental principle. What if God's not trying to keep you out? What if he's trying to keep, get you in? He's already forgiven you on Christ. Let me save you. What's sin? I don't want to be saved. I don't want to view the way you view. I don't want to see the way you see. The way you get happiness, I don't. I meet people that the only thing they have in common with Jesus is they don't want to go to hell. They don't want what he wants. They don't see. They don't have the passions that he has. They don't have the drive that he has. They're not on the same page. My sheep know my voice, is what he says. Do you have that tonight? If you have in any area of your life tonight, this is the most accepting, loving, redemptive place you'll ever find. In the name of Jesus, the body. It's a place where you can say, I've been living in a secret, and you don't have to announce it, but I've been living secretly here. I've got this area here going on there. You can be healed. At the end of the book of James, James says, confess your sins to one another. That's not standing up saying, here's what's going on. It's literally going to someone and saying, I need help. Why? Because they're probably going to look at you and say, dude, I've been there. I had a guy call me today. He's a young kid from Dallas, Fort Worth. Heard I was in the area. 
and he got kicked out of the military. You know why he called me? Because <laughs> I was kicked out of the, I was kicked out of the Marine Corps for drug use in 1995. I was a meth addict. I wasn't evil. I just loved to get high. That I've met church people my whole life. They're like, oh, drugs are terrible. Well, you say that because you've never done drugs because they're awesome. Seriously, that's why people do drugs because they're fun. But they will own you and take your life. And it's a cheap imitation of him. So I was booted in 1995. Some, a Christian family in Southern California literally plucked me off the road and said, they saw me living out of my car on the beach, brought me to their house, said, you can live with me. No, no drinking, no drugs, no girls. You have to go to church on Sunday and you can live here. They were wealthy. I was like, I'm all about it. Took me to a Billy Graham crusade and I got saved. I was 6'4", 132 pounds. I was a mess. So this kid calls me today. And he, goes, I, he goes, I know you've been where I've been. <laughs> Cal and I just geek out over that. I want to be the person that no matter who you are, you're comfortable coming to. Dude, we, we've, we've been there, right? We've been there. And we wrap our arm around those guys and say, listen, not all, I just don't want to make you feel better because you can be forgiven, but you can be healed. Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. No one ever quits sinning. You have to be delivered from sin. If you could quit sinning, you don't need Jesus. You have to be saved from sin. And I've been in these kind of settings where people sit there and go, dude, he's right, I'm feeling conviction, I'm never going to do that again. Yeah, you are. <laughs> Which is why you've been doing it your whole life. You're not a terrible person. You're just trying to make yourself better. And that's not how this whole gig works. So you're like, how does this work? You kneel before him and say, I can't fix this. What did we say the other night? Sin is not what you do, it's the want to do it. That's the crux. Jesus can change the want. And that's what sanctification is. It's a cleansing of my heart. Dude, I'm different. I'm different. Not because of who I am, but he's just ridiculous. He's so good. So whether you're online or whether you're in here, I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. And I, I do, I, I plead with you. Come into agreement with me. By the way, being set free, there's no special stuff. It's breaking agreement with the enemy, breaking agreement with lies and coming to agreement with Jesus. Would you be willing to do that? Bow your heads. Jesus, right now in this moment, I come out of agreement with the area of my life that you're speaking to me about. You're telling me that I'm malfunctioning there. I'm seeking fulfillment in a way that I'm not created to. I'm looking outside of you for something. I've been broken. I've been hurt. So I come out of agreement with viewing that person that way. I come out of agreement with feeling that way. I 
come out of agreement with what you don't approve of in my life. And in the name of Jesus, I come into agreement. Say that with me. I come into agreement with your plan for my life. I come into agreement with your will. I break agreement in the name of Jesus. I break agreement with this area of my life that is marked by defeat, sin, and rebellion. And Jesus, I come into agreement with you. Set me free. In the name of Jesus, set me free. Cleanse me. Make me white as snow. Walk me into freedom. Wash through me. Repair my story. Pluck me up and put me in your son. In the name of Jesus, I pray. And everybody said, Amen. I want to encourage you, tell someone. Seriously, tell someone. And you need to tell someone that you see every week that's a leader, that's someone that's, that's, that loves Jesus. Go to your pastor. You know those little praise cards? Dude, your church is so cool. I'd go here. There's churches I go to where I'm like, I wouldn't go here. I'd go here. I'm serious, I'd go here. You got these little praise cards outside. And on the back of them, it's, I don't want to tell anybody. And then on the other side, whether well, I don't want to tell anybody or I, this needs to be told. Or I need to talk to somebody. Go to your pastor and just say, dude, listen. I was set free tonight. And I don't know if I'm comfortable enough telling you all the details, but would you pray with me? Would you keep me, would you, would you keep me in your thoughts this next week? Dude, that's his lane. That's his love language. Seriously, that's who he is. Because you were not meant to walk that road alone. Is that good news or what? Are you alive? Are you okay? You good? <laughs> let's stand. Cal's going to come in a minute. But let's stand and just with radical focus, let's just sing to him. Let's tell him how much we love him. And if you're online, just do the same. Praise the Lord. Cal, you can come.